0: Good morning, please open your Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 2, our text this morning is 1st Peter 2 verses 11 and 12, and I would, I'd like to uh, stand together and, uh, I'll read those two verses and then we'll pray. So let's, let's stand as you're finding your place there. And we'll read verses 11 and 12 in First Peter 2. The Holy Spirit has inspired these words for us. Verse 11. Beloved, Father, would you please fill us with a sense of what we're about to do, the weight of of what we've just read, the, the glory of special revelation, the duty of handling your word rightly, the gravity of Worship that is receiving the preached word, and the great affection that comes from seeing Christ. We pray that you would do these things in us as we consider just a small portion of the words that you've written to us. We pray that you would be gracious to us in these things and that we would be moved to love. And good works for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son And of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What do we call that? We call that the the great commission. The glorious task that has been given to us by the Lord Jesus. He gave us this task just before he ascended to the Father's right hand. He has told us to make disciples. We are to spread the gospel with an eye toward the conversion of the lost, and then disciple the saved with an eye toward moving them toward maturity. Make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As uh, all of you who, who regularly attend Providence or who are members of Providence, you, you know that our Our equipping emphasis this year is evangelism. And evangelism, sharing the gospel, is a huge part of this great commission. It's not just evangelism. It's sharing the gospel and discipling believers to maturity. But when we think of evangelism, we tend to think almost exclusively of opening our mouths and explicitly sharing the truths of the gospel. The Apostle Peter wouldn't remove that, he wouldn't remove that from our conception of evangelism, but he would add something to it now, beginning with these verses that we've just read. He's writing to us as elect exiles. We bear the name of Jesus Christ, which draws the hatred of the world and the the poor treatment and persecution that goes along with being disciples of Jesus Christ is a test of our faith. That's how Peter has characterized it for us. Your faith is being tested. And so his his message in this letter is, meet that testing of your faith by setting your hope on the coming salvation and by entrusting your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. Part and parcel of being an elect exile is being an emissary of the gospel. And Peter points out beginning in these verses that an enormous part of our gospel witness is our lives. He would have us to understand evangelism to be our verbal witness and our godly lives. Now listen to how Tom Schreiner summarizes Peter's teaching on evangelism in this letter. He says, quote, Outsiders... Lost people, outsiders, are won to God by distinctive participation of Christians in the world in conjunction with a verbal witness. We absolutely have to speak the gospel. The apostle teaches here that our evangelistic mission includes living conspicuously godly lives that commend the gospel that we share. That idea is is the first point in your notes. It's the main idea of what we're talking about this morning. Our conduct is essential to our mission. Our conduct is essential to our mission. Let's look at the first part of verse 11 again. Just the first few words. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. With that word beloved, the the apostle is, is reminding us We are beloved by God, and he's signaling a new section, just like he does in 4.12. So that word beloved almost serves like bookends on a big section in the middle of the book here that deals with conduct as essential to the elect exile's mission. And the verses that we've just read, verses 11 and 12, are like the intro to that larger section, which extends from 2.11 2.11 to 4.11. So he begins by addressing us as sojourners and exiles. Of course, he's, he's writing to people who likely live in the same cities that they've always lived in, just like us. We're not all transplants, but we are exiles in the sense that, not that we, that we are literally new in town, but what he means is that we, we believers are citizens of a different land. We're citizens of heaven. Peter wrote in verse 9 that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we were were to borrow from Paul in in Colossians 1, we might say we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We are citizens of another realm. We serve another king. We have another mission. And the mission that's been given to us by our king Peter's already talked about just in the previous verses that we've looked at the last, the last few weeks. He says, we are a royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And chief among those sacrifices is proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. By using those words, sojourners and exiles, he is saying, hey, remember, you belong To another kingdom, live like it. Now, back in chapter 1, he already called us to live godly lives, but in that context, it didn't really have any reference to outsiders. But in this larger section, beginning in 2.11, extending to 4.11, he specifically calls us to live godly lives that reflect the gospel so that the world sees it. Live godly lives That is part of how we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you were to quickly scan through this middle section, you'd find that the two main ways that Peter wants us to commend the gospel with our lives is through godly interaction with authority figures, even and especially unreasonable authority figures, and secondly, by our godly response to suffering. Those two ways are are, are the chief ways that we commend the gospel to the world. By the power of the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us, we behave like Jesus when we're treated poorly. We behave in exactly the opposite way of fallen human nature, and therefore we commend the truth of this gospel that we proclaim. The point is that our mission here as witnesses for the gospel, is more than verbal proclamation. It certainly is verbal proclamation. If, we, if you look back at verse 9, the word proclaim there, it means to verbally report. So, so we must share the gospel verbally. But with the rest of this section, Peter, Peter teaches that our proclamation, to, to that verbal proclamation, we must add godly living and perseverance under suffering And think then about what this means, what, what the apostle is telling us here. We are to pursue godliness for the sake of our evangelistic mission. For some of us, this may be a completely new way of thinking about the pursuit of godliness. Some in the modern church think of godliness maybe strictly in terms of personal benefit. So I, I, I grow in Christ's likeness because it, it benefits me. It makes life easier. It makes life more enjoyable. Praise God that that is true. How, how could life not be more enjoyable the more that we become more like Jesus? A- as we move closer to perfection in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Goodness, throw any trial at us. And we'll be able to handle it with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a wonderful place to be, to become more like Jesus. It makes life more enjoyable and fulfilling. But personal fulfillment isn't the only reason that the Scriptures call us to emulate Jesus Christ. Now, Now, some of us may move outside of that motivation for godliness... And, and we pursue godliness for the benefit of others. We want to be a sharper tool in the Lord's hands within the church. If you, if you think about the people who have been most beneficial to you in your walk with the Lord, who have helped you grow, it's most likely those people who are more mature believers. And absolutely, we should desire to grow so that we can be a blessing to others and help them grow. But that too is not the sole reason that we should pursue godliness. The enthusiastically reformed among us may pursue godliness from a desire to glorify God. We we want all the world, all the beings in the heavenly places to see the manifold wisdom and power of God displayed as He has transformed us from sinners into saints. That's a fantastic reason to pursue godliness. And it is the ultimate end of our our existence. But there is still another reason, not a higher reason, but there's another reason to pursue godliness. How often do we think of godliness as an evangelistic tool, part of our mission? That's precisely what Peter wants here in this letter. Verbally sharing the gospel is essential Romans 10 teaches faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. People are not converted without hearing the gospel. We love the gospel around here. We talk about it all the time. We we, we hear it weekly. In the beginning, our our holy God, He created all things, including man, and He gave man the, 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 the glorious duty and privilege of bearing His holy image in the world. But that first man rebelled, Against, against God, and, and everyone who descended from that first man, Adam, now naturally, delightfully does the same thing. So all, all of us who are descended from Adam, we, we, we all naturally have sinned against God Almighty in innumerable ways, and this good God of the Bible does what any good judge does, and that is that he brings judgment upon every evil deed. And the just punishment for every sin is eternity in hell away from the presence of God. But graciously, God has chosen to save sinners by sending a substitute to live in the place of sinners, live perfectly, perfectly obeying his law on their behalf and to die in their place, absorbing the wrath of God on their behalf. That substitute wasn't just any man, but it was the God-man, the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. He lived perfectly. He died on the cross. Three days later, God raised him from the dead so that everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ, they're forgiven of their sin, they're given eternal life, and they begin this journey of being progressively transformed into the image of Christ. Now Paul teaches in Ephesians 1 and 2, that the gospel is this wonderful story of how God has taken sinners who hated him and one another and by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has transformed them into saints who love him and one another. Now, Peter would have us to know that hearing that gospel is one thing, hearing it and seeing it, seeing that it's true in the lives of those who proclaim it. That is something else. And that is why the verbal witness of the gospel without the visual witness of godly lives is devastating to the mission of the church. Which have you heard more often as a reason for people not wanting to have anything to do with the things of the Lord? Which of these two statements... I just find the the claims of the gospel to be implausible. Is Is it that or is it all the Christians that I know are hypocrites? My experience is that I've heard the latter far more than the former. In fact, I've met a lot of people who cognitively believe every part of the gospel, but they cannot stand what they see in the church. You know, the, the main reason that, that Paul wrote the book of Titus is because there were a host of Christians on this island of Crete who were devastating the mission there by living lives that denied the gospel. The gospel was being proclaimed verbally, but they were living lives that denied it. And what is the remedy that Paul gives to Titus in that book? It's in Titus 2 1. He writes, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. They were proclaiming sound doctrine, they were proclaiming the gospel. So so Paul says, Titus, you've got to teach to the church what accords with sound doctrine and the gospel. And what is that? Godly lives. Teach them to live godly lives. We we are called to live conspicuously godly lives that commend the gospel for God's glory, lives that shout to the world, the gospel that these people proclaim has to be true because their lives actually confirm it. Seeing it with my eyes, what they say is true. To that end, Peter here gives us a negative exhortation and he gives us a positive exhortation. Okay, so here's the first one, the the negative, all right? We must abstain from ungodly passions. We've got to put those away. We must abstain from ungodly passions. We want to look at verse 11 in its entirety now. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We're to abstain, resist, stay away from the passions of the flesh or ungodly desires. Now, the, the, the passions of the flesh are not merely bodily, not just bodily desires. They may include bodily desires, but not only bodily desires. In Ephesians 2.3, if you're taking notes, you'd write that down as a cross reference for this point. Ephesians 2.3, Paul helps us to define this phrase passions of the flesh, because in that passage, he makes it parallel to the desires of the body and the mind. The passions of the flesh are the desires of the body and the mind. Of course, Paul, what Paul means is any godly desires, any, any, godly, any, any ungodly desires that are physical or non-physical, ungodly thoughts. Okay, so now turn with me over to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, and and we'll think through what some of these things might be. Peter is talking about the same thing in our our main text: ungodly desires, physical, non-physical, when he uses that phrase, passions of the flesh. But in Galatians 5, Paul gives us a list of these things. Now, he's going to call these the deeds of the flesh. We could say the passions of the flesh are the desires that lead to these deeds, all right? And this is not an exhaustive list. But it's a starting point. And as we we read through this slowly. I may have a word or two to say about each one. But I just want you to consider. Are are any of these things. Something that is pulling at me. Consistently. Or is it something similar to what's pulling on me. In in other words. Does this cause your mind to go to something. That's not explicitly on the list. But that you are struggling with. A, A different ungodly passion. okay. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Sexual immorality. That is, that's just obvious. And it's, it's full orb. any kind of sexual activity outside of the bonds of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Now, when I say marriage, it's always heterosexual. But just, okay, so we're talking about homosexual desires, everything, any kind of sexual immorality. Impurity, so this now he broadens it to in, any kind of immorality. Sensuality, that, that refers to just a, a lack of self-constraint. You, you're given to excess in a given area. You, 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 don't, you don't know how to do moderation. Idolatry, which is valuing anything above God in your attention, your desires, your devotion, the choices that you're making. Sorcery. Enmity, hatred, you feel, you, you feel yourself being pulled to hate someone, maybe someone from your past, bitterness towards someone who's done something against you. Strife, a, a propensity to be quarrelsome. Jealousy, the desire, you, you do not want to share what belongs to you. Fits of anger. Any kind of manifestation of anger. Rivalries, which is self-seeking. Dissensions, which is causing discord, and particularly in the church. Divisions, just like r- religious elitism. Now, in in our context, let, let me step on a toe or two, divisions would be an us-versus-them attitude about theology among the Orthodox Church. So on secondary matters, on secondary matters, do I say, I can't have fellowship with you because you're not a seven-point Calvinist or whatever it is for you, okay? Envy. Envy. Envy put alongside that discontent that's at the heart of envy. I want what somebody else has because I'm not satisfied with what I have. Drunkenness, that could that, that, that could be the inordinate use of of anything. orgies, and then and then we have the bucket at the end that catches everything else, and things like these. Again, it's not, not an exhaustive list, but it would a wonderful for, for each of us. Would we find desires behind any of these works pulling on us? And for you, what is it? It's important to identify this morning. What is it? We we are to resist all ungodly desires. Which wage war against the soul, he says. With that clause, which wage war against the soul, Peter tells us, why to resist these passions? You know, I think, I think Peter and Paul must have gone to the same seminary because they, they use so many of the same phrases. We could call it the school of Christ, perhaps. Paul talks about this same war in Galatians 5. Where we've just looked at these things. He, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The desires of the flesh, they are malevolent. They are on you. They are warring against the soul. Now, the soul here, is, it, it, it's, a, it's a word that is bigger than just the immaterial part of who you are. We might think of, a better way to think of it is just your, your whole being, life. The, the desires of the flesh wage war against your whole being. In Ephesians 2, Paul teaches that the passions of the flesh, they are in league with two other enemies. And you've been around here long, you know what those two other enemies are. It's the devil and the world. So we've we've got these three enemies conspiring against us all the time. Our own flesh, the devil, and the world. Now, are these enemies, are they content only to shut down one life. Do they, they're just after your life. Now listen, our English translations say your soul or your life. The, the, the Greek text says that, that, that wage war on the life. Okay. Given all of the biblical storyline and then this context in Second Peter, I believe that we must say that, the, that these desires make war in order to lead us to be ineffective in the mission. Well, write, write this down. Here's a, here's, a, here's a good cross-reference. 2 Peter 1, verses 5-8. through 8. 2 Peter 1, verses 5-8. It's like a mirror image of, of these verses here. In, in 2 Peter, Peter encourages the cultivation of godly desires to prevent our being ineffective in the faith. Here he says, put away ungodly desires for the same, for the same reason. Now li- listen to... What he writes there in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1 5 through 8. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I would exhort all of us to take this phrase in 1 Peter 2.11, which wage war against your soul, and put it in the proper context by thinking of, thinking of the, con- the consequence of, of spiritual inactivity on our part as, as not just a consequence for us, but the consequences of our wartime inactivity as devastating for the souls of the lost. This is an evangelistic mission that Peter has in mind here as he's writing these verses. When you do not take up arms against the ungodly desires, warring against the soul, it makes you an obstacle to the mission of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I listened to an audiobook a few years ago, entitled, On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society. It's by a man named Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. One of the points of this book is that humans tend to have a natural aversion to killing other humans, even, even in war. If, 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 if they can avoid it, they will avoid it. One of the examples that he gives is that during the Civil War, after battles were fought, the, 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 the battlegrounds were strewn with, with dead bodies, and people would come along and, and be, be cleaning up the battleground. They would find a large number of muskets that had never been fired. Men were pretending to fire their weapons, but not firing and we might wonder, well, how, how, could, how, could you, how could you know that they were pretending and weren't really, maybe they were just killed before they could fire their first shot. Well, th- these, these are muzzle loaders that they, they used back then. You, you, you put the ball in the end, you ramrod, there's more to it than that, but I'm not going to explain it for the sake of time. But you, you put one round in through the end, you shoot that one, and then you load another one. Well, the muskets of, of many of the dead were found with multiple rounds loaded. So, so they were going through the motions of, of loading rounds and then pretending to fire them and then going through the motions of loading another round as if they had fired them, doing this over and over. They were afraid to kill. And ultimately, this, this means that many of them preferred to be killed than to kill. On, on some of these battlefields, upwards of 50% of the muskets have had multiple loads like this Some had as many as 10 unfired loads. The result was that an an inordinate burden of battle fell upon their brothers at arms. Now, Some in the church have a similar aversion to making war on ungodly passions. We We go through the motions of war we, we don't really fight. And those of whom that is true, that their ungodliness is obvious to the unbelievers around them, so they end up denying the gospel that they say is, is true. And then the job of commending the gospel to a watching world falls more and more on the shoulders of of their brothers and sisters in Christ, that that kind of of prof- professing believer isn't just neutral in, in in this in this battle; they are an obstacle to the mission. They're an obstacle because. those who don't resist ungodly passions, they're actually working against the mission by denying the gospel with their lives. It makes the mission of of the godly in the church all the more difficult. There there is no such thing as, as neutrality when it comes to pursuing godliness. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on that notion. He says, quote, the Christian life is very much like climbing a hill of ice. You cannot slide up You have to cut every step with an ice axe, only with incessant labor and cutting and chipping. Can you make any progress? If you want to know how to backslide, leave off going forward. Cease going upward and you will go downward of necessity. You can never stand still. Now, Peter would have us to think of that reality in an evangelistic framework. Our failing to abstain from ungodly passion is not just failing to advance the kingdom for his glory, but it is our working against the kingdom by denying the gospel with our lives. So I would call all of our attention back to that passage in Galatians 5, this list of of ungodly passions. And perhaps yours was there, perhaps it wasn't. But what are you struggling with? Where are you failing to struggle? I would encourage you to write on your notes Will I take up arms? Will I take up arms? Whatever it is for you, it's making war on your soul and therefore making war on the mission of the gospel. Its desire is, is to make you ineffective on this glorious mission, will you fight alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ? If we're going to commend the gospel with our lives, we must abstain from ungodly passions. That's the negative exhortation. And it gives a positive. We must also maintain godly conduct in the midst of slander. We must maintain godly conduct in the midst of slander. Verse 12 keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know what's interesting about this? What, what does he call the unbelievers here? He calls them Gentiles. He's writing this letter to Gentiles. These are, these are people in Asia Minor. They're, they're literally Gentiles. These are I mean, there may be a few Jews among them, but they're Gentiles. But he's calling the unbelievers Gentiles. Why would he do that? Because in Peter's mind and the mind of the rest of the apostles, the church is Israel. The, the, the one people of God is believing Jews and Gentiles. And this verse, 2.12, is almost certainly an allusion to the Septuagint, Isaiah 52.5. The Septuagint is a Greek version of the Old Testament. Isaiah 52.5 two five reads in the Septuagint version, this is my translation of it, because of you, my name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. And so Peter is saying to, to the church, look, don't be like ancient Israel. You as, as the true Israel, do the opposite of what they did. Commend the Lord by your works. Don't let the name of God be blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, why, why would they speak against believers as evildoers? In the, in the original historical context, these believers in Asia Minor, they didn't honor the false gods of the culture, and they were viewed as subversive. Like They're trying to stir up trouble by, by not worshiping these gods and by claiming that there's only one. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, he wrote that, that Christians in, in the first century, they were loathed because of their, quote, abominations. Now, among those abominations were their observance of the Lord's Supper. See, to the, to the pagans, they, they hear Christians talking about eating the flesh of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ, and they, and they, they believed or, or charged Christians with cannibalism. These Christians are, are, are whacked. And so they're evildoers. So Christians rejected the false worship of the culture And then their own godly Christian worship was mischaracterized and reviled. I think we can can identify with some of that today, can't we? The modern flavor of this thing is the charge that Christians are intolerant because we claim that there's only one God. Certainly, I'm I'm, going to guess that most of us have been called intolerant if, if we've been vocal about the fact that Jesus is the only way would be the modern version of this. Another reason that believers would be spoken of as evildoers is Peter actually references this reason twice in in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He catalogs the typical ungodliness of the Gentiles, and by that he means the unbelievers. And there he writes, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You you don't join them in their ungodliness. And so they try to destroy your character. In 3.16, speaking about the same thing, but just using different words, he writes about them speaking against our good behavior in Christ. So when we don't join them in ungodliness or affirm them in their ungodliness, they revile us. Can you think of any modern examples of this? Perhaps you have examples in your own life. You have not joined in the debauchery of the culture, and so you've been maligned for it. Or you, in your own personal life, you have a higher moral standard than, than the culture, and you have been, you've been called intolerant or, or, or evil. We, we give any number of modern examples just in the realm of human sexuality. Notice that Peter writes, when they speak against you as evildoers, not, not if. The, the world which hates us, is motivated to slander us. Jesus promised that we would be ridiculed. That we would be persecuted. And he also said, when? It's going to happen. Our reputations will be assaulted in the neighborhood, and in the workplace, even in the home. Now, what is the natural inclination when that happens? What do we want to do? We want to verbally defend ourselves. But here is something that is conspicuously absent from this letter. There is no admonition in 1 Peter to engage in a verbal self-defense of our morality. Not a single one. You can read this letter over and over. You will come up empty. Do not correct those who speak wrongly about you. Or if you're looking for validation to do that, you won't find it. There's no command not to, but but it's conspicuously absent. There is an exhortation to be prepared to speak, but it's to give an explanation for the hope that is in you. Now, why would somebody ask you about the hope that is in you? If you follow the train of thought that leads to that verse in chapter 3, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you, The reason that people are going to ask that according to Peter is because they revile you and you don't respond, but you just do exactly what he says in 2.12. You continue to do good. When people revile you and you don't defend yourself, but you continue to do good, that provokes the question, what on earth is going on inside of you? Where is this hope coming from that, that, that moves you to keep Living this kind of life, even when we are pouring it on you, when we are persecuted and slandered, it's our godly living and refusal to defend ourselves that will move these persecutors to ask, "Where where does this come from?" I don't want to assume that it's all that this is always the case, but frequently, our impulse to defend ourselves or to preserve our reputation comes from a place of pride rather than concern for the success of the mission. We don't want people thinking wrong things about us. I think if we're all being honest, we typically want people to think more highly of us than they ought to. We certainly don't want people thinking less of us than they ought to. And so when something false is said about us, we feel this almost panicky desperation to correct it. But what is our instruction here? What does he say? Do good. Do good. I, I, don't, I don't want to steal thunder from future sermons, but numerous times Peter points to Jesus as our example in this. Oh, goodness, he was slandered far more unjustly than you or I ever we, will be. How did he respond? I, I read through Matthew this week, and that very thing was just, it's remarkable to me once more in those final chapters, is that Jesus' is being is being slandered and, and accused of horrible things, and he is, he is asked to defend himself. and he does not do it. And, and, and Peter teaches explicitly in this letter, the Lord's behavior in that is not to be unique to Him. It should be emulated by all who claim His name. Do good. When you're spoken of as an evildoer, do good. Continue to be godly. Don't revile them in return. Keep in mind the entire time, this is an evangelistic enterprise. Every time you're attacked, but you don't open your mouth to defend yourself, but you just continue to live like Christ, you image the Christ who went to the cross though he deserved it not. Focus on your character, not defending your reputation. Build your character. Don't defend your reputation. You are going to be slandered. Don't defend yourself. Pour yourself into growing up into a character that commends the gospel. When you open your mouth, let it be to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and let your conduct be consistent with that. Now, why should we do this? He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the ultimate aim is not that we would be justified or validated, but that God would be glorified. And as as elect exiles, that's what we are to be all about. We are to be all about God's glory. But how exactly is is that going to work, practically speaking? How is it that people who hate us and are motivated to slander us are going to see our good works and glorify God? Well, that these people glorify God on the day of visitation likely indicates that they have been converted. They've been converted by what they've seen. Typically, in the New Testament, people glorify God By believing or when they believe. For example, just after Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 13, we read in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, when they heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They glorified God when they believed. Paul writes of Abraham in Romans 4.20, that he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Some other, other references would include Romans 15.9, Romans 15.9, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, and Revelation 5.12 and 13. Revelation 5.12 and 13. Think about how powerful that verbal witness is in the face of slander, especially as opposed to what everyone expects, which is verbal self-defense, when unbelievers slander anyone, what do they expect? In, in, in the political realm, when one side says something against the other, what, what do you expect? A quick retort, right? It, it happens all the time. So when they slander us, but we, we do not defend ourselves, but we just continue to, to image Christ, that is tremendously powerful. And if we have been faithful to communicate the gospel verbally, oh, it leaves people with no choice but to see that the gospel is true. They may not repent and believe unto salvation, but they will not be able to deny the gospel by our lives. Your, your, your battle with these ungodly passions, whatever yours is, that battle is a missionary endeavor. Your response to the slander of the world, your response to to ungodly people attacking your character, that is a missionary endeavor. If you've ever shared the gospel, you know the frustration of feeling like the person isn't listening. You can rest assured they're watching and once they have heard the gospel from you, they're watching all the more intently. And in their fallen state, they want to be able to deny the gospel because you live inconsistently with it. That, 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 that idea that all, every Christian I know is a hypocrite, that is the most convenient of ways to reject God. Peter would call us to leave them without that option. T- take that out of the playbook. If they would deny the gospel, they must deny a gospel that they know to be true because they have seen the veracity of it and the lives of those who proclaim it. That is our mission. Peter's ultimate desire is that these lost people, not that they would would deny it having seen that it's true, but that they would believe it, that they would repent, that they would be saved, that they, on the day of Christ's return, that they would join us in saying, Glory to God, who by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ saves and transforms sinners, even us. We begin with Matthew 28. I'd like to close with Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, would you please give us missionary hearts and to that end, would you help us to to bring our conception of the pursuit of godliness into that realm. We, we, We put off ungodly passions and we put on godliness for the sake of commending the gospel to the lost so that the number of the saved might increase to your glory. Please give us missionary hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.